play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, actor Kyle MacLachlan. David Lynch fans know him as Special Agent Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks, or from his very first film role ever when he was a little baby Kyle in Dune. Portlandia fans know him as the mayor, but to me, Kyle MacLachlan will always be Trey from Sex and the City. Alrighty then. You'd know that if you've seen the show. And Agent Dale Cooper might enjoy a damn fine cup of coffee, but Kyle McLaughlin is a wine guy. He's the owner and founder of Pursued by Bear, a wine label in Walla Walla, Washington. Well, it's my company. You know, it's my brand. I oversee everything. Um, I'm, I'm, I run the show, <laughs> you know, apart from the actual winemaking, and I collaborate with Dan very closely on that as well. Kyle would like a steak with his glass of Cabernet, so we explore the history of one of the most iconic steakhouses in America, Peter Luger Steakhouse. They've been serving up steak in its original Brooklyn location since 1887. And don't throw out your corn cobs, your kale stems, or your potato peels. Jill Leitner wrote Scraps, Peels, and Stems, recipes and tips for rethinking food waste at home. And she's going to educate us on what belongs in the trash and what belongs in your belly. And one thing that belongs in your belly is a very tasty treat that's made from a part of a vegetable that I've always thrown straight into the compost bin. As they cool down, they will crisp up, so they are exactly like sour cream and onion potato chips. It's true. I tried it. The mystery ingredient will be revealed later in the show. But first, my conversation with Kyle McLaughlin. Kyle grew up in rural Yakima, Washington. And in 2005, decades into his acting career, when he started getting really interested in wine, he decided to open a winery in Walla Walla, Washington wine country. That's some real good alliteration. This is just a couple hours from where he grew up. How is the wine scene different from like Napa or Sonoma? Well, it's the Wild West, probably what Napa was like back in the 60s or 70s. Although I I, I will say it's developing really quickly, very rapidly. We have over 900 wineries now. Um, and the whole scene really started in 77 with um, a winery named Leonetti. They sort of put the tent pole on the ground and said, I think we can make wine here. And they, they proved to be right. <laughs> so um, the winemakers themselves are uh, getting better and more sophisticated and understanding what they've got and how to work with it. So it's just a really up and coming, growing, exciting region that is that still feels you know fresh and alive and vibrant. And that's what I like. So Kyle teamed up with a Walla Walla winemaker. I am so impressed that I've been able to say this about stumbling and was eventually tasked with naming his winery. Thought about all sorts of different names that had more to do with my day job. So I wanted it to be sort of in the theater tradition. You know, there was the downstage and upstage and, you know, down left and Harlequin and um, ultimately were all taken, believe it or not. So they were all trademarked already. So I finally just said, you know, there's this really fantastic stage direction that occurs in The Winter's Tale that if you have any knowledge of Shakespeare at all, you would know. And it's the, the stage direction is exit pursued by 
by a bear, and that's what Shakespeare wrote out, uh, Act Three, Scene Three, in The Winter's Tale. And indeed, the a bear comes on stage and chases the actor off stage. That's what the action is called for, and it's his most eccentric, it's his most uh, specific and kind of um, unexpected, I guess, stage direction that he uh, ever wrote. So I thought, you know, that's kind of an interesting approach. What about Pursued by a Bear? And that's how it started. If you haven't seen the original Twin Peaks TV show created by David Lynch, some of the most iconic scenes involve Kyle's character, Agent Dale Cooper, eating and drinking. And many of these scenes were filmed in the Double R Diner, which is a real-life diner in North Bend, Washington, called Tweed's Cafe. And if you listen to my Jenny Slate episode from a couple years ago, which is one of my personal favorites, you may remember producer Aaron and I went there to try their famous cherry pie. It was so good. I think it was my first cherry pie. Ever? I think so. Really? I remember I had a salad and a cherry pie for breakfast that day. (laughs) And a damn fine cup of coffee. Damn fine cup of coffee. Damn fine cup of coffee. Speaking of, perhaps his most famous line comes from an episode where he tells a waitress that she just poured him a damn fine cup of coffee. I'm just wondering if you are able to order coffee without people thinking they're the first ones to make the joke. Uh, hey, Kyle, do you want a damn fine cup of coffee? They do like to buy me coffee. That is very true. If they, if they recognize that I'm there. Uh, and I do like to drink my coffee black. And I tend to like my coffee a little more on the kind of um, the rich um, mocha side and a less bright and dark roast. I prefer a much darker roast. So I actually have a fun little project that I've done on the side that came out of, I don't know, just sort of talking with a Uh, some guys in Walla Walla at the Walla Walla Roastery, um, which is a fantastic little place there right near the winery. You need to start your day with coffee before you finish it with wine. And we kind of developed a little blend that we call brown bear. The actual name of the coffee is Melange, which was an homage to Dune, which was the movie I was in, my very first movie. And it's uh, it's a it's a rich dark roast, and we package and they sell that, and and uh, it's kind of a fun thing to have your own kind of coffee blend, and they do a great job. I'm curious about your opinion of cherry pie because on a past episode I had actor Jenny Slate on the show, and part of her last meal was cherry pie, and I ended up uh. tracking down the original guitarist from the band Warrant because they sang that song cherry pie, and he oh, says God. that he can't stand it because they would do these things before shows, like this is like in the you know late '80s where they would do cherry pie eating contests with fans, and he's like, I can't look at cherry pie anymore. I saw so many people eating it and then uneating it if you catch my drift. So I'm wondering if if you've hit your barrier with cherry pie. Um, yeah, my, yeah, my barrier with cherry pie is pretty, it's pretty shallow actually. So it doesn't take much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not as a huge lover of cherry pie as is the character of Dale Cooper, you know, but I, I, you know, appreciate a good cherry pie and I'll dig in and, but yeah, there's definitely a limit. Maybe a slice of cherry pie or two every, every year, once a year, a couple slices is fine. So let's talk about your last meal. What would you choose to eat for your last meal? I went for something just pretty, pretty simple, which is there's a steak place in New York called Peter Luger's. They just just do a beautiful like a ribeye combination at Porterhouse. And uh, it's like decadent. And I can eat it maybe twice a year because it's so rich. It's better to eat it early in the evening because there'll be no sleep that night, or at least you'll wake up at four in the morning, and probably that'll be as much sleep as you're going to get because it's so much meat. But it's, um, you know, that, you know, with, with the, they do like a kind of a hash brown type thing there, um, along with just the wedge uh, head lettuce with uh, blue cheese. That is one of my favorites. That would be like a go-to with a really nice Cabernet uh, would be a, a, a nice way to end it all, I think. You go out with a smile. That's pretty special. My wife, Desiree, brought me to Peter Luger. She's a big 
she was a big steak eater. She's grew up in Miami and, and she likes a good steak. So we had a ritual in the summertime. If we would go out east um, and spend a, you know, a weekend out together in the Hamptons or something, we would on our way back in, we would drive back in and we would swing into Peter Luger's in Brooklyn or Williamsburg and we would just pop in. And um, that was kind of the Sunday night routine that we would have a couple of times in the summer. And it was it has a nice memory to it. Kyle McLaughlin wants a steak dinner from Peter Luger Steakhouse in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. With their take on hash browns, the restaurant calls them Luger special German fried potatoes, and an iceberg wedge salad with blue cheese and tomatoes. Peter Luger Steakhouse has been open and in the same exact location since 1887. And when we come back, I talk to one of the owners about the restaurant's long history and ask him why, in 132 years, They've never had a female server. We'll be right back. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Kyle McLaughlin wants a steak dinner from Peter Luger, a 132-year-old steakhouse in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And for our little baby country, 132 years is a really long time. The restaurant has only changed ownership once in that time, and it's still a family business. I spoke with David Burson, whose great-grandfather bought the business back in 1950. David is 28 years old, and he co-owns Peter Luger with his 8-year-old grandma, who still works at the restaurant five days a week. She even goes to the market weekly to select the beef. He co-owns with his aunt and his cousin, and that makes him the fourth generation owner. Peter Luger was actually opened as Carl Luger's Cafe Billiards and Bowling Alley in 1887. This was before there was a Williamsburg Bridge. Peter Luger actually opened the establishment and his nephew Carl ran the kitchen. My great-grandfather had a metal factory across the street. His name was Saul Foreman, and he used to go to Peter Luger every day for lunch. 
every single day. He would go with clients. It was his thing. He would have a steak and a martini for lunch. Sometimes he'd go twice a day, actually, lunch and dinner. And in 1950, the restaurant had kind of fell into despair. And the Luger family put up the restaurant for auction. And my great-grandfather, Saul, was the only one who showed up at the auction, not knowing anything about the restaurant industry, kind of decided to take a shot on the restaurant. And he bought the restaurant for the price of the land. And he, along with his wife, Marcia, hired somebody who was a former USDA meat grader to take them to the wholesale meat houses to teach them how to inspect for the best possible meat. And it was kind of what really set the precedent for how we would select meat going forward. So I want to talk a little about how old school the restaurant is. You don't take credit cards. You can only make a reservation by phone. Is that right? So we actually recently changed that, which has been one of the better changes I've made um, or that we've made for the business, I would say. Up until two months ago, every reservation was called into the restaurant and we were getting inundated with phone calls. I'm talking about 8,000 phone calls a day. Yeah, when you have one to two people answering a phone, wow, 8,000 calls isn't really doable. So we are using Resi's software now to make reservations through our website, and it's made everyone's life so much easier. Steak is at the center of the Peter Luger menu. And usually when you go to a nice steakhouse, you'll get to choose the cut that you want, or you see how much it weighs. But on this menu, it's very simple. Steak for two. Steak for three, steak for four, single steak, and rib steak. We dry age it. We cook it on a broiler with just a tiny bit of clarified butter underneath the steak, a little kosher salt, and we send out the steak sizzling hot. There's no fancy sauces. There's no crazy preparation. It's truly about serving the best steak we can give our guests. And for the sides, it's a lot of pretty classic steakhouse sides. You have French fried potatoes, you have creamed spinach, you have the baked potato, and then you have Luger's special German fried potatoes for two. Can you talk about what that dish is? Sure. So the Luger German fried potatoes are our version of hash browns. They are chopped fried potatoes with caramelized onions, few spices. We bake the dish to order. Definitely one of the things we're known for. The menu has the ring of an American institution created in 1887. There are some things on the appetizer menu I've never seen anywhere else, like sliced tomatoes and onions with Luger's own sauce. I think that is a menu item that is totally our own. I mentioned simple goodness earlier, but it is sliced tomato and sliced onion. What you see is what you get. And we go to great lengths to make sure we're getting the single best tomatoes we can find. And then the real move that I think a lot of our customers do is they'll order a piece of thick-cut bacon with it. They chop everything up, and they have that with our Luger sauce. And that is apparently a fantastic dish. I like how you say apparently. Is it something that you don't usually eat? I oddly hate raw tomato. I feel you. I was the same way until I was 28, actually. I hated tomatoes. So maybe this will be your year. It'll it'll be my breakthrough. Yeah, maybe so. Because for me, somebody gave me um, like one of those like little orange grape tomatoes straight from the garden. And I was like, oh, this tastes different than other tomatoes I've had. It's super sweet. But yeah, I never liked just the sliced red tomatoes either. 
it's a textural thing for me. I can't really explain it. Like, I have a weird mental block. Can't do it. What is the Luger sauce? We actually, ironically enough, recommend that they do not put the Luger steak sauce on the steak. Our big belief is that high-quality meat does not need any sauce. But it's ketchup meets cocktail sauce. Oh. Somewhere along those lines. I wasn't expecting that. Okay. With a decent amount of horseradish. I thought it would be kind of more like brown, steaky, kind of Worcestershire A1 sauce. Oh, I can't stand A1. It's, there's definitely some Worcestershire in it. All desserts on the menu are served with homemade schlag. That's the German word for whipped cream. But there's no other German word on the whole menu. Hold on. <laughs> I love... Are you taking a schlog timeout? I... Schlog timeout. <laughs> I love whipped cream. Yeah. Like, a lot. And I would not order anything called schlog. Why do you guys uh, go with the German schlog instead of just saying whipped cream? That's a good question. I think, frankly, it differentiates it. And it's something we've definitely become known for. Um, when I used to come as a kid, my downfall was dessert. And I would go to town on schlog... It's our own unique identifier for really good, thick, homemade whipped cream. We bring a large bowl with it with any dessert. Okay, so when you said you went to town on it, you could just get in there with a spoon and just eat schlag. Oh, yeah, I'd be very happy with that. And also, <laughs> our Holy Cow Ice Cream Sunday has a ton of schlag on it, so... There's never a shortage of schlag by the end of the meal. So when you're not at work and let's say you go out to dinner somewhere or you go out for ice cream, do you accidentally call whipped cream schlag in other situations? <laughs> I have not yet. I have answered my phone with like, thank you for calling Peter Luger. I'm unable to avoid the constant feel of being at work. I want to start a schlag blog. A blog all about schlag. <laughs> I'm going to keep a log about the schlag that I'm going to put on my blog. <laughs> is it true that all the servers are men it is and was that by uh, design no it was not the way it kind of happened was that i'm frankly i guess responsible for hiring the one thing that i'm almost never hiring for is serving positions we just had one of our waiters retire after 52 years something it, it was crazy wow and our rule of thumb and it applies to all genders, is must have at least five years of steakhouse experience. And anyone who meets that criteria, it was more than considered for the position. Okay, time for a break, but I'm really excited for you to hear this next segment. Jill Leitner wrote a whole book about how to cook with your kitchen scraps. You will never again throw away an apple or potato peel. We'll be right back. Hey! Are you following along on Instagram? Have you left a review yet? Just a couple little guilt trip reminders from your friendly neighborhood Jewish mother who doesn't have any children. I have to take out my Jewish mother tendencies on someone. And today that happens to be you. So uh, don't make mother mad. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and take off that jacket. I'm hot just looking at you. When he's at home, Kyle McLaughlin does quite a bit of cooking for his family. One thing I read about you is that you love to cook and you are also very big on leftovers, that you don't like food waste. Is that true? 
Yeah, I don't. I like to. Um, I'll bring stuff home from restaurants. Um, I'm I'm kind of a recycler anyway. Um, I, I guess the influence of my grandparents. They were recyclers even back. Wow, when I was when I remember from the '60s, they were doing this, and they weren't hippies by any means. They were very you know very conservative, but for some reason they have a frugal side to them, and they would just recycle things. They had a compost heap in their backyard in Spokane, and and they would compost and things I didn't really understand at the time, but makes sense to me now. So um, yeah, so I'm I'm all about that, and I think you know. Part of it is also you take something that's really well prepared. Let's say I bring home, um, you know, maybe half of a steak that I haven't eaten or something. And, and uh, so I'll, I'll get home and I'll get excited about what I can do with that. Um, to turn it into something else. So I'll take the sliced steak and I'll find like, you know, some shredded head lettuce. Maybe like I'll do a like, quick saute of like some onions and I'll find like a honey mustard and I'll do a little quick sear on the steak just to bring the flavors out. Maybe wrap it up into a really cool, like a, you know, burrito thing. And that's my fun is to take something as a base like that and then to build on it a little bit and make something different than what, what I had from before. I am right there with Kyle. I hate food waste. And I'm like everybody else. I always find a bunch of slimy arugula in the back of the fridge, but I try so hard to use everything up. And it's kind of a game. Like there's that satisfying feeling when you have three unrelated items in the fridge and you're able to put them together and actually make a meal out of it. And this is all stuff that my dad did when I was a kid that I hated. Like, you know, he'd cut the mold off the cheese and I'm like, why can't we just buy new cheese? And now I'm the one who cuts the mold off the cheese. Why can't we just buy new cheese? Is so funny to me for some like a kid. Like that's an odd thing for a kid to complain about. I always like said cheese. I know. Like who cares? I would say bratty stuff all the time. You make it seem like we're poor. There have been a bunch of cookbooks coming out lately that focus on leftovers and how to cook with these bits and pieces of vegetables and fruits that usually end up in the compost bin. And one of those books is called Scraps, Peels, and Stems, Recipes and Tips for Rethinking Food Waste at Home. It's by Jill Leitner. Are there some things in the book or just some things in general that you look forward to the quote waste because you love what you can make with it almost more than you can with like the part that people like? Cauliflower leaves. Oh, exactly. Everybody does that. (laughs) So what do you do with them? Um, What I do, it couldn't be easier you roast them on high heat, right? It's just like uh, kale chips or something, except you don't roast it quite that long. The edges, the thin, delicate edges will get crispy. So when I buy a head of cauliflower, I keep telling people, like there's now a packaged product that's it's just the little edges of the florets. That kind of drives me crazy because cauliflower is a zero-waste food. So I will turn the florets into like almost french fries, right? Roasted uh, parmesan, some chili flakes, and then make a creamy soup out of the main chunky stem and Mm. then turn the leaves into basically a warm salad. They just need a drizzle, like a little salt and a drizzle of vinegar, and they're delicious. That's awesome. So Jill shared another tip that has kind of changed my life. This is the one thing now that I talk about at parties when I go. I'm like, yes, hey, um, hey, listen to this thing that you can do with leeks. Like, this is all that I can talk about. (laughs) Bringing in that hot leek talk. (laughs) I know. Mm -hmm. I've got a a tight five on leeks. (laughs) So, you know, when you make something with leeks, like you're making potato leek soup, the recipe is only call for using the white and very light green parts. And so you're left with like a foot of the dark green part of the leeks. And I always feel guilty getting rid of it. Like sometimes I'll save it to make stock, but I don't really make stock that much. So thank you, Jill. Not only did she teach me to cook with them, 
She also gave me a tight five at a dinner party. But she says, if you roast the dark green part of the leeks, they'll taste exactly like sour cream and onion chips. You take the dark green part, you chop them into about one inch lengths. You roast it on high heat, like 400, 425 even, in a single layer, um, sprinkled with some olive oil and some salt. Until they're crispy, they'll just start to go kind of golden brown, but pull them out like you don't want them too dark. As they cool down, they will crisp up, so they are exactly like sour cream and onion potato chips. You can also go super fancy, like once you have this crispy little garnish, like what I've done with them when I'm feeling myself, is make a bowl of the potato leek soup and then put some on it as a garnish. Oh, yeah. Right? Because they stay crispy. They hold their texture. Or it's just like, it's just going to be me and this little bowl, and I'm not going to share and get out yeah. of my face. So as she's telling me this, I'm thinking in my head, like, oh, you poor crazy lady. You think a vegetable tastes like a delicious potato chip. But she's right. I did this. I think the night that I got home from interviewing her, and they taste exactly like sour cream and onion chips. They are very delicious, uh, but you have to watch them in the oven. I burnt probably half of them and was very sad about that. So just let them get light brown, a little bit crispy. She says you can also do the same with potato peels and turn those into crispy little chips. And sticking with the topic of leeks, because... It's really all that I have these days to talk about. You can regrow green onions in your kitchen if you use the cutoff end of the leek. So when you buy it from the store, sometimes it still has a few of those little white roots attached. So you want to put any kind of a glass or shallow bowl, put just like an inch of water in the bottom so the top of the white part is sticking above the water, but the roots are submerged. And within a few days in a warm room, you will just see green, new fresh green growth coming out the top, and then you'll see the roots getting a little bit longer underneath the water. Yeah. Just keep it topped up so the water stays fresh. They can really live in a glass of water for at least a month. Like not everybody has garden space, right? And so then you could just cut off the greens as you want them and it'll keep growing back. Exactly. This exactly. is so cool. <laughs> what are some of your favorite recipes in the book? Um, one of the ones I love talking about, aquafaba. Basically, every can of beans you buy comes with a free egg. It's so cool. It's the cooking liquid, right, from any kind of can of beans. So just like the, the kind of goopy, thicker Constant, water that comes right. in the can so, of beans. So uh, aquafaba is essentially, literally, it's Italian for bean water. <laughs> It sounds way better if you say it in Italian, doesn't it? <laughs> um, Aquafaba. <laughs> right? It's really like bean goop, like goopy bean water. Basically, and they're still trying to figure out exactly why, what happens. So you whip it in a sand mixer is the easiest way to do it. You whip about a couple tablespoons of the goo, um, and it puffs up in your mixer like meringue. Wow. Like the first time I did, tried it, I was like, yeah, like this is one of those, you know, Instagram things that turns out to be like totally fake. And then it worked. It worked. It's amazing. And uh, so I started screwing around with that, and I realized that, in fact, it works for black beans. It works for kidney beans. It works for anything. You just have to kind of think about it and match the, like, the darker the bean, the more flavorful the liquid is. And so if you're making, like, like there's a gingerbread molasses loaf in the book that uses black bean aquafaba. And it just kind of adds this earthiness that works really well with the molasses and the spices. And... Like, I'm a cheapskate. I love the idea that every can of beans I buy has a free egg. <laughs> and, and eggs last a long time. Like, in general, there's not a huge amount of food waste that comes from eggs. But isn't it cool to just, like, opt out of that system? Well, also, there's so many times when I want to make something 
bake something and I realize I don't have any eggs in the house yep. and you usually have a can of beans in the pantry. Exactly. So can you talk about how it works? So in one can of beans, would that be the equivalent of one egg? Yes. And you whip it up and then you use it in baking. Is that where yes. the replacement comes in? Right. You need to whip it before, um, then just like fold it in where normally you might blop in the egg. I'm sure there's a more scientific technical cooking term than blop the egg in. <laughs> I don't think there is. I really don't. Sounds I don't. totally professional. I like onomatopoeia right? myself. <laughs> Bloop. Bloop. And so like if you were making cookies, you could right. put this in or into cakes. Exactly. Like I've made waffles. I've made all kinds of different cakes and cookies. It just, it's really versatile and cool. Jill's book is packed with recipes like this. Instead of throwing out the ribs and stems from chard and kale, she says you can pickle them and put them on salads. And this is something that I've been doing for a couple years. When you fry up bacon, save the grease in a glass jar or like a clean little tuna can. And then you always have bacon grease around so you can make greens cooked in bacon grease. Or what's really good is to do breakfast potatoes in the bacon grease. You always have it around, even if you don't have any bacon. And of course, Jill does everything. She candies her orange peels. When she peels apples for a pie, she saves them to make apple tea. Or you can make homemade apple cider vinegar. A lot of us were raised to waste a lot. And it wasn't called waste. It's just you don't eat this part. And so I guess you just have to stop and think for a second. You know, that's a thing that I'd love just to touch on. And it's not so much about the fresh, fun stuff that we've been talking about. It's about the really boring. Everybody has packages in their pantry or their freezer where they have a family member that is obsessive over Best Buy dates on packages, those are completely made up. There's finally starting to be some shifts in this where even the FDA is like, wow, actually, we've kind of gotten out of control. The only food that has to have a Best Buy date is baby formula. Everything else is either targeted at the retailer where it's like, hey, make sure that you put the old eggs at the front so people buy them or the milk. And like, like let's keep it moving because this stuff does go bad. But all of those canned goods, it's like a quality issue. It's never going to make you sick because it's past its date. It just might not taste as good. It's such an American thing to be so afraid of germs and getting sick and I mean, I've been doing this since I'm a kid. I don't know if it's because I have a dad from another country, and that's why I grew up this way. But you just smell it, and if it smells okay, exactly, you eat it. You know, trust I trust your senses. I don't throw away cheese because it says the date has passed. I smell it, and if it smells okay, I eat it. I think you just have to trust yourself, yes. and trust your experience with food, yes. and know what's okay. Yes, yes. I have. I am now. I used to be the person that people would call for like cool brunch recommendations and now I'm the person that people call when it's like hey can I still eat this (laughs) (laughs) I love this all so much before we wrap up let's check back in one more time with Kyle McLaughlin so throughout my conversation with Kyle we talked about his family because he cooks for his son there's these really sweet stories that I read about him making baby food for his son and he talks so sweetly about his wife but it turns out there is One thing that could cause a divorce in the McLaughlin household. I read that you are a house divided in the burger department, that you are an in-and-out person, and your wife likes Shake Shack. Yeah, you know, what we, going back to what your last meal, it was sort of a toss-up because there's a place in Los Angeles called the Apple Pan. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so this is a burger place that's been around since the 1940s, I think. Um, And it's a counter kind of service, and I took Desiree there 
my wife on one of our early dates because she's a burger gal. You can get a sense she's definitely a meat, meat girl. And that burger, the steak burger, is pretty special. So that would probably be my my top burger. You know, Shake Shack is probably, I mean, it sort of depends on where you are. Now the Shake Shack is sort of, you know, they, they're everywhere. But before it was sort of Shake Shack, New York, in and out L.A., and I like them. I like them all. You know, we really just kind of it's sort of a mood thing, you know, kind of where, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Are you closer to Shake Shack or are you closer to In-N-Out? So you just need meat, <laughs> whatever meat is closest. Still, it's still, you know, we're still formatting an opinion on that, formatting an opinion on that. So we'll see <laughs> what, what it comes up with. But we like them all. And that is Kyle McLaughlin's last meal. Kyle recently starred in the Twin Peaks reboot. It's called Twin Peaks The Return. He's currently filming the Norwegian TV series Atlantic Crossing in Prague. He plays FDR. He had gray hair when we were talking, and he said that's why. And he will co-star opposite Patricia Heaton in a new CBS comedy called Carol's Second Act. Or you can get your Kyle fix the way that I do, by watching reruns of Sex and the City over and over and over and over and over again. That show never gets old. Or you can do it Aaron's favorite way and watch Dune. I still have never seen Dune. It's very weird. Thanks to David Burson, co-owner of Peter Luger Steakhouse. The original restaurant is in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. There is a second location in Great Neck, New York that opened in 1960. And a third location is opening in Tokyo next year. So basically they open a new restaurant about every 50 years or so. Thanks to Jill Leitner. I love her book. It's called Scraps, Peels, and Stems, Recipes and Tips for Rethinking Food Waste at Home. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, recorded with Aaron Mason. Our theme music is always by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. I'm a 39-year-old, my dad. (laughs) I don't need that. I'm going to take that off. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> walla Walla Washington. Walla Walla Washington. Meat. I don't know if you want your partner being like, she's a meat gal. She's a burger gal. She's a meat lady. <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap up, let's check. Let's check back in. <laughs> With Kyle McLaughlin? With Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs>